Well, tonight I'm going to go to a passage of Scripture that the more I've meditated on the years, it's really been a source of strength to me. It's become a source of strength and comfort, but a lot of people have told me through the years they were beat up with this passage of Scripture. So I want to talk to you tonight as we continue through the book of Mark, starting in chapter 10 this evening. What did Jesus actually say about divorce and marriage, or marriage and divorce? Now, this is not the only place that Jesus addressed this, so we're only going to deal with this particular passage tonight. I couldn't wait to marry Becky. I absolutely couldn't wait. I mean, she was the perfect girl for me. I was so excited, and um, I just, I, sometimes I go back and reflect over our dating, our engagement, and and when we got married way back in the 70s, and uh, the life that God has blessed us with, it has just been an incredible, incredible marriage, incredible life together, and I always want to give God thanks for that. Most of that is because of my wife, and I'll be right up front and tell you that. The second thing is that through the years, this has been one of the most painful topics I've had to deal with. I have spent hours and hours in the Bible, reading, pursuing graduate courses on how to help people who go through a, di a divorce and then the whole question of remarriage, the pain that that brings to children, to extended family members, sometimes the pain that it brings to an entire congregation or to a community and to a circle of friends. When I tell you this, I'm not exaggerating, Becky is the perfect woman for me. I didn't say my wife is perfect, but she's pretty doggone near it, in my opinion. She's just the perfect woman for me, and there's no such thing as the perfect woman or the perfect man. And I hope that Becky would say the same thing, that, that I'm the perfect man for her. But there was a story that I read years ago about an old Persian philosopher that was sipping tea, and one of his students came to him and was so excited. He was getting married, and he was talking to the philosopher about it, and he eventually looked at the, the philosopher and he says, teacher, did you ever consider getting married yourself? And the philosopher set his tea down and said, you know, when I was younger, I really did consider marriage. He said, I, I searched for the perfect woman. And the student asked him, says, did you find her? And he goes, eventually I found her. She was beautiful. She had a beautiful mind. And the the the, the Student asked him, he says, well, what happened? He said, well, she was looking for the perfect man. <laughs> so that was the end of that story. Kids sometimes have a really funny way, and I don't normally start with humorous stories like this, but tonight, let me just share with you what some kids said. Kirsten is 10 years old. She said, when she was asked, how does a person decide to who marry, to marry? She said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> Eddie, six years old, has asked the same question. How can a stranger tell if two people are married? And he responded, married people usually look happy to talk to each other. Derek is age eight. He said, you might have to guess based upon if they're yelling at the same kids or not. And then finally, Lynette, she was asked, what do most people do on a date? Eight years old. She said, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something interesting to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> so our kids learn from us about the dating and what to look for in marriage. It's a difficult time that we live in when there is so much, so much divorce 
And when I realized that I pastor a congregation where there are many divorces and remarriages, there are many people who've had multiple marriages before they came to know Jesus Christ. Right here, years and years ago, when we were still in the forming years, and January will be 25 years that I've been pastor of this congregation, but someone stepped up to me while I was greeting somebody and said, you really shouldn't welcome them to our church. Both of them have been divorced before. And they weren't Christians. And I looked at them and said, that's exactly who we're looking for. And they were like, no. I go, yes, that's who we're looking for. None of us are perfect people. We're all broken people in some way, shape, or form. And like I said, this scripture has been used to to beat people up, but if you read the scripture carefully, you get God's perspective on marriage, and you get God's perspective on if tragically that marriage fails, you get God's perspective that will bring you peace, it will bring you power, but it will also teach you that real success is about obeying the Lord. That's the bottom line, is obeying Him. A couple of things before we read the passage, because I think if people understood and didn't just pull a verse out of context, and that's why I love midweek services so much, because we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. When you look at this, Jesus is not teaching on divorce. He's not teaching on marriage. Jesus is confronted by people who don't want to listen to him, And he's confronted with a hostile question where they're trying to trap him again. Remember, John the Baptist has already been beheaded because he confronted Herod upon his marriage and the fact that he had stolen his brother's wife and had married her. And Herodias demanded John the Baptist's head. The Pharisees were hoping to get Jesus into a controversy where he would say something and it would force Herod's hand to go ahead and arrest Jesus And maybe behead him the way they did John the Baptist. So I need you to have that context in mind. That Jesus' goal here was not to teach on divorce and remarriage. It was to turn the question back on the head of the Pharisees. Secondly, we don't find in this passage. Now look at me. This is important. If you're watching online, you may want to write this in the side of your notes. We don't find here in this passage any instructions on pastoral care for those who go through troubles in their marriage, conflicts in their marriage, or even go through a divorce. So when you read this passage, this is the passages you go to for pastoral counseling or for pastoral comfort during a time in that period. Jesus is also not addressing those who are dealing with the question of divorce and remarriage. I have had to deal with those families where there's been an abusive husband. I've had to deal with men who have beat their wives, beat their children, men and women both who've had multiple relationships and multiple uh, affairs outside the marriage. And this is not a passage that you would come to say to a spouse who's being abused And I often tell young couples when I'm doing premarital counseling with them, your father, speaking to the fiancé, is not giving you a way to this man to abuse. Any man that would abuse or neglect or not take care of his family, any man that's a father would go get his daughter and his grandchildren and bring them back home. Do you follow what I'm saying? 
So we have to look at this passage not legalistically. We've got to see what Jesus is actually doing. And so Jesus takes his, these Pharisees and he shows them whether or not they're going to learn or not. He shows them how they're mishandling the word of God. And you might be saying, well, pastor, come on, get to it. The reason I'm telling you all of this prior to us even reading the passage is so that we don't mishandle the word of the Lord. And so that we don't read it and take it out of context and twist it to say something it doesn't say. But what he does is he challenges us in this passage to look for God's will in our lives and also to submit to what God commands. So let's look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum, went down to the region of Judea, and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Well, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them with the question, what did Moses say? Now, here's where I have a little bit of the, an issue with the, the New Living Translation. And this is my favorite translation of the Bible for just devotional reading and reading using the pulpit. But the Greek word actually there means command. Command. That's important. You may want to write that out to the side. He's actually using the word command. What did Moses say command? And if you read uh, the New American Standard or the <clears throat> English Standard Version, those are both really word-for-word -word translations. NLT, NIV are thought-for-thought translations. So let me reread it. What did Moses command in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. You should circle that word, permitted as opposed to command. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Divorce originates in the hardness of human beings' hearts, men and women's alike. But, and that's an important word there, let's just so we get it back together. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God, he goes all the way back to the creation story. God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. And this is, explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, this is shocking. We're not going to have time maybe to even get through all of tonight's message. But if you'll read on later, when they get to the house where they're staying at, the disciples are like, should you even get married after Jesus says this? Because the prevailing culture of the day was, was called up in a huge debate about divorce. And we'll get to that as we go through this. What the Pharisees do is actually kind of what happened to me as a youth pastor a lot. Occasionally, it's happened as a senior pastor. As a youth pastor, one of the most common questions I was asked of junior high school students, high school students, college students, and even some single adults was this, how far is too far? 
And some of you as teenagers, you may have asked your youth pastor or your youth director, or you may have even wondered about that, you know, should we hold hands? Should we put our arms around each other? Should we kiss? How long should they? All kind. I loved being a youth pastor because I would just kind of get them to pull it all out and my brother-in-law will call me sometimes because I was his youth pastor. He'll call me sometime, and he said, I will tell my boys how you used to counsel us and, and how you used to help us through these very same questions, and they would call me and talk to me about it. The, que the question the Pharisees is, is asking is, is the wrong question. And what I would tell my students when I eventually got them to talk to me about how far is too far, I said, that's the wrong question. What you're asking is, how far can I go and still be a Christian? We need to be asking, how closely can we follow Jesus? Say our mission statement with me tonight. Celebrating God's love by persuading people to become followers of Christ. How close can we walk with Jesus? They're coming at Jesus and saying, what does the law allow me to do? Or what can I get away with? What can I get away with and still be faithful? They're concerned about their rights, not their responsibilities. They're not concerned about God's will that we love our wives as Christ loves the church. And they're more concerned, listen, even the disciples were more concerned with the rights of the husband and were not concerned at all with the needs of the wife. And so when Jesus addresses this hard-hearted question that has mishandled the commandment of Moses, he doesn't just deal with the, what Moses permitted, but he goes all the way back to the beginning. Divorce was a concession to human fallenness and a safeguard for the protection of women. Divorce was a concession to our human fallenness and a safeguard for the protection of women. In the creation mandate and in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. Man had not sinned yet. God had joined them together forever. They were to be fruitful and multiply. Imagine what marriages and families would have been like if people had never sinned. Just think about that. But sin changed everything. Now there are two schools of thought in Jesus' day. And Rabbi Hallel, he said that a man could, have, could divorce his wife for any reason at all. He could even divorce his wife if he met someone more attractive and he desired her. He could send his wife away. He could divorce his wife if she burnt the biscuits. She's just very, very liberal. But there was another rabbi by the name of Rabbi Shemai, and Rabbi Shemai said the only reason you could divorce your wife was if she had committed adultery and she had been unfaithful to you. Those were the two schools of thought, and obviously in the culture... From what we know, Rabbi Hillel was the most popular because it allowed people to get away with the hardness of their hearts and what they wanted rather than what God wanted. Now, you need to understand this. Moses did not command divorce. Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of their hearts and the way women were being treated. It's, you're not in the garden anymore. Hundreds of years later, I mean, after the flood and all of that, it's obvious people's marriages are falling apart. And Jesus will, elaborate, will elaborate on that. Look, if you would, with me tonight. This is a beautiful portion of Scripture from the book of Malachi. 
God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride. And now you've broken those vows. You've broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. Say that with me. God, not you, made marriage. God, not the government. God, not society. God made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God, that's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. The God of angel army says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down and don't cheat. Circle all the beautiful, positive things that God says about marriage there in the book of Malachi. And I bet you all you thought Malachi was about was tithing. But if you look at it, he's, he's talking to them about the beauty of marriage, the oneness of flesh, the, the relationship, the children that God wants us to bring from. And then he just gives us some very positive commands, guard our marriages. You see, what God hates is divorce, not divorced people. And that's a huge statement right there. God hates divorce, not divorced people. God hates divorce because, number one, divorce breaks faith between God and you. You make a covenant between God and one another and your family and your friends and the community and the church. So it's a vow you make before the Lord. You take in His name. Number two, divorce breaks the faith of the one flesh of your marriage. Once a couple is divorced, that marriage no longer exists. That's what divorce means. And I don't have time to get into that tonight. But it's important to know that even though that marriage no longer exists, there are still intertwining patterns of life because of children and friends where there's always going to be some sort of relationship, but it's broken now. Divorce breaks faith between your children and you. When divorce happens, it disrupts the life of a child, the security of a child. But there's also an important statement that Jesus makes here that helps us to understand marriage. Masculinity and femininity are joined together in marriage this all has to do with the image of God within us. Now, to my left is a beautiful, middle-aged couple. I bet you wish I could still say young couple. But to my left is a beautiful, middle-aged couple. They have four beautiful children. They have three gorgeous daughters that are going to grow up one day, and you want your sons to meet them if they're born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have a, a talented son. Now, I love him. I spend quite a bit of time with him. He's one of the members of our board. He's a personal friend. However, he does not reflect the image of God to me. I love his wife. She's a wonderful person. She sings. She serves. She's always looking for some way to help. But she doesn't reflect the image of God. But together, they reflect the image of God because God made them in his image, male and female. He created them. Get it? If I say get it, you say got it. Get it? Good. Now, of course, each of us have the image of God stamped upon our lives. But there's something about a husband and a wife, male and female, joined together in holy matrimony 
that reveals God's plan, not only for marriage, but reveals God's plan for intimacy, but also shows us. Now, this, let me go look back at this beautiful couple here. You can't dispose of her like she's just a piece of trash. Because if somebody else comes along that's more attractive and you dispose of her, I have friends in the Dixie Mafia that I will call and they will persuade you differently. Do you see what I'm saying? We're chuckling, but that's exactly what was happening. And that's exactly what happens in our society today. I recently read a report on how many dads don't even pay their child support for their children. And then I know men who are so steadfast and prompt in making those payments because they want their children to know they love them. There are three promises made in the marriage covenant. Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one. So you two, all eyes back on Keith and Christy again, you two are no longer two separate people. You are one. You should actually sit close to her. This is a really good time to do that right now. Because what you, oh, she's doing her finger like this. That was just too easy. What you made was a promise of loyalty. Look on the screen. You made a promise of loyalty that you would always be loyal to one another. You made a promise of intimacy with one another. But you also made a promise to worship together. That's what marriage is. It's the reason that God says in Mark 10, verse 9, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands. Now, Christy, you need to listen to this one carefully. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. In other words, God calls me to love Becky to go Full steam ahead. Give it everything I've got. So I ask Becky periodically, what's it like living with me? I look at our budget. I want to be sure I'm not spending more on books or things that I enjoy than I'm spending on Becky. I want to look at my calendar and be sure that, that she takes up a significant portion of my time that, that we spend together. And also that when we're together, we enjoy one another's company and we share together. In other words, we have to examine ourselves and wives should do that with their husbands as well, but go all out in loving one another. Marriages that are marked by love and giving and not taking or getting from one another, those marriages survive. The statistics are, now listen, this is important and I hope you can see this on camera tonight. The statistics are that people who passionately follow Jesus who passionately follow Jesus, they worship together, they pray together, they raise their kids together in church, those marriages are way up here in success. It's like 90-something percent. Those people who say they're Christians, but they don't worship together, they don't go to church together, those marriages are way down here. So when you hear people say that Christians' marriages mirror the world's marriages, that is not true. What you have to look at are the people who are passionately following Jesus. They're not just naming the name of Jesus or a member of your denomination. They see their marriage as a sacred trust that God has given to one another. G.K. Chesterton that I've quoted so many times here before, 
He said this, if people can be divorced for incompatibility, I cannot conceive why all of us are not divorced. I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman as such are incompatible. Now, I want you to hear me. There are times when my wife is sitting with a group of her lady friends, girlfriends, however you say that, and I walk in and all of a sudden, they dial it down. There are times when I'm sitting with a group of my buddies and maybe your wife or my wife walks in, we dial it down. What Chesterton is getting at is there is incompatibility between all of us, but especially between the sexes. So what the Bible says that when there is stress that comes into our marriage, we need to act fast. When there is stress, stress factor, we need to be proactive about dealing with it. We need to talk. We need to pray together. This is how, look with me at Matthew 5.23. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and are about to make an offering, underline this, you suddenly remember, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering Leave immediately, so underline that, go to this friend, underline that, make things right, underline that, then and only then come back and work things out with God. If you will take those phrases, suddenly, immediately, make things right. Boy, how quickly if we could deal with things and listen to one another. If you want to prevent divorce, focus less on yourself. Focus less on yourself. Philippians 2, 3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. In other words, think of your wife. Think of your husband better than yourself. Examine your time, your calendar. Examine your, your wallet, your money. Examine your motivations. And if there's little things creeping up, deal with them immediately. And if you need help, see a pastor or see a counselor or talk with your small group together. Number two, focus more on God. In other words, have a Christ-centered marriage. And we don't have time to talk about how to do that tonight, but we've preached on that a lot here before. Matthew 1.19, and I love the Phillips translation of this. Joseph, speaking of Mary and Joseph, Joseph, her future husband, who was a good man and did not want to see her disgrace, planned to break off the engagement quietly. But because Joseph was a good man, a godly man, God was able to speak to him. And you remember the dream he had? Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary into your wife, as to your wife. In other words, how can I say this without sounding? I'm not a mystical person. But don't you know those moments in life when you've had those nudges from the Holy Spirit? Speaking to you about going or giving or loving or sharing or helping somebody, those, those nudges. If we focused upon the Lord and we're praying for our spouse, we're praying for our children daily, we'll experience those nudges from the Lord. God's absolute best is one man and one woman for, a life, for life. And I don't have time, and we're, we're almost at the end of this. I'll let you read this passage from 1 Corinthians later. But I do want to deal with this in closing. The one flesh union is torn apart by adultery and abandonment. Adultery and abandonment. 
Now, that's important because sometimes people are abandoned in their marriages. I can't tell you how many Christians through the years I've known where the unbelieving spouse has just walked off or a believing spouse who said they believed and they decided they no longer wanted to be married and they walked off. Times that I've even talked to people who said, you know, we've even prayed in tongues and we know this is the will of God to have an affair because this is the person they want. I had a few years ago someone who attended here and says, you know, I'm in the wrong marriage. I know God's going to get me out of this marriage. I don't know if it might husband is going to die, but I know I'm supposed to be married to a pastor. And I looked at her and said, no, you're not. You're supposed to be married to him. And if he calls him to be a pastor, then you'll be married to a pastor. Oh, no. And so she abandoned her marriage, and her life has been shipwrecked ever since. You see, abandonment in the scriptures is tantamount to divorce. One of the things that I often tell couples, if you're married to someone who's threatening suicide, listen, when I worked in mental health, one of the things that we learned quickly, a suicidal patient will kill you quicker than a homicidal patient will. Because when a suicidal patient doesn't care about their life, they don't care about your life. And so if you have a spouse who's threatening to commit suicide or I'm going to take my life, you're left with, do I protect my children? Am I going to hear a gunshot in my kid's bedroom and then be shot in the back by my spouse before he or she puts the gun to their head? So there are a lot of things here. This wasn't meant for pastoral counseling. This is dealing with the very hardness of the heart. Listen, the hardness of a heart of a man or a woman that would say, I found somebody else more attractive. I don't like you anymore. I can send you away because Moses said I could. God permitted divorce in order to protect women. Let me say that again. God permitted divorce in order to protect women. The rest of this you can read for yourself. I don't think, there, oh, there is, there at the very end, there's God permits remarriage for adultery. God permits remarriage for abandonment. But before you remarry, you should repent and reconcile. And most importantly, remain single until you're peaceful and balanced. Sometimes people don't want to hear what I'm going to say about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you have been through a divorce, you need to wait at least a couple of years before you start dating again. There's a lot of things you've got to work through, process through. So just take it from someone that loves you. That's not a legalistic law that I'm trying to put up under you. I'm just saying... Be sure if you've gone through this and you've stumbled upon this message tonight that you go through that process of seeking help, praying together, so that you're entering into a new marriage, if you do get remarried, healthy, spiritually renewed, spiritually revived, learn from the lessons of the past, and you come into that marriage with God's favor upon your life. I hope this has helped you tonight, and I hope you'll come and join us this Sunday morning at Woodland Church. If you've got any questions at all, don't hesitate to email us here at woodland.church. God bless you. Good night.